Okay, I'm going to read for us. Today's text is going to be uh, Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. It's a, several verses I'll read, but I'm actually going to back up to verse 53 of chapter 6. Um, and as I read it, pay attention to a couple things. One is the transition at chapter 7, verse 1. And you'll see here that chapter 7 is a turning point in Mark's gospel where uh, more intense uh, confrontation with the Pharisees and more persecution to Jesus from the Pharisees. So chapter 7, verse 1 is a turning point, and you'll see that as I read it. And then also in what I'm going to read in verse 14 of chapter 7, you'll see it says, after he called the crowd to him again. So the first half of what I'm going to read is Jesus really directing himself to the Pharisees, and then he looks to the whole crowd. So just pay attention to that as I read it. So let me read. I'll start at Mark six fifty-three. And of course, this is after Jesus has walked on the water. Remember last week we talked about that, his walking on the water and all the miracles that he performed and the teaching that the apostles uh, received from him. And then how the Lord told us, even after his feeding in the 5,000 and other miracles, until they saw him walking on the water, it says their hearts were hardened still. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, for their heart was hardened. Even the apostles' hearts were hardened. And we'll pick up it, verse 53. It says, When they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. So he's not inhibited to touch the dirty people, right? He's in the marketplaces touching them. He's healing. It is dramatic. People are flocking to Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many things such as that. 
After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Some of your Bibles don't have that verse, 16. When they left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, pretty clear to us, I think, what he's saying there, right? It's the heart. It's inside of us. That is where evil comes from, not things we can take in. But it wasn't so clear to his disciples and apostles, and I hope to explain a little bit more why that is. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit more, in a way, than they did because of Christ's resurrection and death and Pentecost. But also, their background was so much different than ours that Uh, practically it was just really difficult for them to get their minds around certain concepts. And eating food with impure hands was one of them. So let's go back and start with verse 1 of chapter 7. First of all, you see here it says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they'd come from Jerusalem. The ESV version is actually a little bit better because it says now when the Pharisees gathered with him. So there's a true connection between verse 1 and the few verses ahead of it. So what Mark's trying to impress on us is you see uh, the miraculous Jesus, how he did all those things, walking in the water, feeding the 5,000. Many people came to him. He was the great healer. You see all that. And then Mark wants us to know that the very close to that time is a time when the Pharisees approach him. Geographically, they're close, and temporally, they're close. So Mark wants us to know that. So, so now, when the Pharisees gathered with him, some of them who had come from Jerusalem. So you see contrast is what I'm trying to say, contrasting his miracle worker, miraculous work with the um, criticism of the Pharisees, which is coming. It's hard to say who actually came from Jerusalem, whether it was just the Pharisees, or excuse me, just the scribes or the Pharisees and the scribes, because if you read this verse, it implies that it was the scribes who only came, but really if you read Matthew's parallel account of it, it talks about Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus. But the point is, basically, here come the experts. You know, they've been summoned. You know, here comes uh, the experts to investigate what's going on here. Here come, in my mind, here come the regulators, right? Here comes the corporate people. They've been summoned from Jerusalem. The experts of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they know the traditions. They have been summoned because this Jesus is violating almost all of them. The traditions that they have held so dear and so, so um, critical to their culture and their thinking, Jesus is violating all of it. And so they, they've been summoned. 
here comes management, right? That's sort of the way I see it. The, the experts have been summoned, and the little people up here in Galilee need help to get in line, and this Jesus needs help to, to get in line. You remember in Mark, you may not remember, but the last time you hear of the Pharisees prior to this was in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, and it says... The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So we know where they're coming from. There's no interest in trying to reason with Jesus or try to understand what he's saying. They, they hate him. They hate him. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. And part of the reason is because he's violating their traditions so much. They can't handle it. And they hate him because not only does he teach with authority, but what else does he do? There's so many other things he does that they hate. I'll just say it that way. He's showing himself to be God, basically, and divine. He's healing people and performing all these miracles. He's teaching with authority. He does not follow their traditions at all. He's associating with all these unclean people, right? The tax collectors and the... um, the Gentile people, and he's healing them, and he's touching them, and he's doing all these things that are just very offensive to the Jews. So Jesus, in a way, is their opposite. And and as he's doing all these great healings and teachings, he's constantly humble, he's compassionate, he's kind to all the people, he's sincere, he's sympathetic, he sees even people who aren't Jewish and who aren't even going to be his people because he says he knows some of their hearts, he's still healing them, he's still helping them. So He's really the opposite of what the Pharisees are. Yes? The place setting as, I'm sorry? The place setting now as the Pharisees gathered to him, what, where would, would they be in a village on the outskirts? I mean, at this particular time. Uh, they're in Capernaum. Thank you. And you'll see, I don't think it's here. Maybe it's in Matthew's parallel verse, but he enters the house. It's probably the same house, his sort of headquarters there in Capernaum. So they've crossed back over the sea from the east side of the lake, Bethsaida, and the ship sort of got off course and went south, and so they're in the area of this Gennesaret region, which is on the east side of the lake near Capernaum. Thank you. That's totally opposite of where they were? Yeah, they're across the lake, basically, on the, on the uh, west side of the lake of Galilee at Capernaum. Basically, his headquarters, his Galilean headquarters is probably right where they are. And so Jerusalem is quite a bit south. I have to get my map out. Probably 20 miles, 30 miles, something like that south. Okay, so we have the scene. Pharisees are summoned. Jesus is their opposite. They hate him. And it says in verse 2 that... They'd come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. So the, these, the word there is, you know, defiled. Some of your Bibles might translate it as defiled hands or unholy or the common hands. And Mark further clarifies in verse 3, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, so not just the Pharisees, but all the Jews, do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And so what's going on here is the... The Pharisees and the scribes were the experts of the tradition. It's hard to imagine back then, but they didn't have this, right? They didn't have even the Torah written for most people to read. Only a few people had it. They didn't have a printing press, so 
it was oral traditions that were very important to them. So even the law of Moses, which was written down, was rarity. I mean, it wasn't very commonly uh, known about or could be read. So the Jewish people relied heavily on the oral traditions that was pa were passed down from Moses, and it was never written down. For hundreds of years, they didn't write this down. It was passed down orally. And that's part of why this group of the Sadducees got built up. They had to get a group of people that were very uh, educated and informed and trained because they were orally passing down all these other traditions above and beyond what was written down in sacred scripture. And you might think, well, part of that could have been motivated by good intentions because they knew that God's law, God's commandments were holy. And they're so holy that they wanted to put a hedge around it when and if he said the priests were to wash their hands a certain way, well, they expanded it and said, well, just to be sure, we should wash our hands a certain way. And then we should teach everyone else to wash their hands a certain way. And so they had this expanding oral tradition, which, though, became a law unto itself. And it's obvious that um, Jesus rejects that throughout the whole New Testament. If you have any sympathy for them maybe being motivated to want to preserve God's law, it sort of disappears when you see how Jesus treats them. So Jesus tells us that they had gone way beyond any kind of um, good intention, and they were using it to build themselves up and to hold to laws that were not God's laws, and they were lording it over the people. So one of the traditions of the elders that they had developed was to how to carefully wash their hands, and there was apparently a ritual of how to do it, how you poured the water on it and how long it would be on and how long you'd have to to wash your hands, etc., and uh, they not only did it, apparently, like the priests were told to do that, but they made everybody do it, and you had to do it with every meal, and if you touched a certain thing, you had to do it, and the law just expanded to a point that it was really ridiculous what they had to do to, to be clean or to be holy or to be undefiled, and it's very clear from the text here, it was the tradition of the elders. And in verse 4, amplifies it a little. So it says, and when they came from the marketplace, so the marketplace must have been a particularly dirty place to go because there's all kinds of people there and all kinds of food there that's not been blessed and it's not holy. And so whenever they would come from the marketplace, they would consider themselves really, really dirty. And they would not only wash their hands, but they would actually take a, take a bath. They'd wash head to toe before they could do anything when they would come from the marketplace. And that was all written. A lot of that was part of their oral tradition. Gentiles were there, dirty things. So, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they've received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So Mark makes a point here that it was really uh, extensive, what, what they were doing, way beyond what was written in the law. Don't forget that. So, of course, Jewish culture was unique and what right they were a people set apart we know that from the bible and what separated them practically was were a few things all right what were they i mean it, so so you have the jewish people what did they do that practically everyone could see they were different from the rest of the world what there were mainly three main things they did which practically visually set them apart Circumcision is one of them. Now, they circumcised. The other nations didn't do that. What else? Their diet. diet. Thank you. Ashley's looking right ahead. 
Diet, so circumcision and diet, dietary laws and restrictions in the, um, the traditions way expanded the dietary restrictions too. And then there's a third one, which is what we're talking about here, that this washing, this ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing that, that the uh, tradition required them to do. So visually, they were very different from everybody else. And so keeping these laws, I'll call them laws, but the traditions were extremely important to the culture, embedded in the culture, not just for the uh, Pharisees. I don't think, okay. no. I mean, that, those are terms that we would apply to what's written in Scripture. Okay. That those are categories of the law that we see and understand. This is talking about things way beyond that. Okay. They're oral traditions. In fact, ultimately, they put all these into writing, which is called the, anybody know? Yeah, the Talmud. The Talmud, and I'll get to that in a minute. But... um the Talmud essentially is still existent today. It's some 6,000 pages of extra rules that they're, to, that they're to follow. The Talmud is divided in two. There's the Mishnah and the Gemara is what it's called. So I'll just jump to that. So, so essentially, ultimately, the Jewish people decided to put these oral traditions into writing. And what was the catalyst for that was AD 70. You know, when the second temple is destroyed... And really the Jewish nation is just disappearing in a way. They're spreading out into Babylon, into all the area of the Middle East. They're going to different countries. The rulers realized, we better write this down because we're not able to even keep the Sadducees together and this group together to have these oral traditions. So they started to write these things down. And it was about, I think, the mid-2nd century into the 3rd century and 4th centuries when they started to compile all these oral traditions into the Talmud. And it, first half of that is the Mishnah, which is really the their interpretation of the laws. How they interpreted the law of Moses and they would apply it, they realized there was infinite different situations where people would come and ask a question, like the Sabbath. What do I do on the Sabbath? How much am I supposed to rest? Well, the law tells us there's only a few things, really, that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. I wish I could, sorry, it's in Exodus, but you can't build a fire there's certain ways of preparing food you can't do. A couple others, but it's not that uh, exhaustive in the Old Testament what we're not to do on the Sabbath. But they, of course, amplified it. You couldn't walk a certain distance. You couldn't clean certain... I mean, it was crazy. And I say crazy, literally. It was like volumes and volumes of descriptions of what things you cannot do on the Sabbath, and that would just be one example. So, in fact, I think I can just read for you. I was, tra- I was doing a little research on the... Uh, Talmud and just googled it and a lot of Jewish websites which describe historically what is the Talmud and this is, I'm going to read for you a couple paragraphs that I think is typical of what I read about what, what they, how they view the Talmud and these oral laws and I'll just, I'll read it for you and you get a sense of how far even the current Jewish community is from the way we see the law and the way we see scripture but probably I'm guessing similar to what the people in those, um, you know, in Christ's time thought. So this is from jewishvirtuallibrary.com. I don't know the validity of this, but again, it just seemed to represent the opinions of what I had read on several different sites. It says, the oral law 
is a legal commentary on the Torah. So they're saying basically the oral law, as opposed to the written law, this oral law of traditions is a legal commentary on the Torah, which is you know, the written law of Moses, explaining how its commandments are to be carried out. And it's so interesting. We were just repulsed at this sentence. Common sense suggests that some sort of oral tradition was always needed to accompany the written law because the Torah alone, even with its 613 commandments, is an insufficient guide to Jewish life. For example, the fourth of the Ten Commandments ordains, remember the Sabbath day to make it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. From the Sabbath's inclusion in the Ten Commandments, it is clear that the Torah regards it as an important holiday. Yet when one looks for specific biblical laws regarding how to observe the day, one finds only injunctions against, here we go, lighting a fire, going away from one's dwelling, cutting down a tree, plowing and harvesting. Would merely refraining from these few activities fulfill the biblical command to make the Sabbath holy? That's his question he posits. Would, would it? I mean, we would say, well, if that's what the Bible says at that point in time, that's what you should do, right? But they say, indeed, the Sabbath rituals that are most commonly associated with holiness, lighting of candles, reciting the Kiddush, and reading the weekly Torah portion are found not in the Torah but in the oral law. So basically he's saying here, we, we just had to have commentary on it to follow because the Bible wasn't sufficient enough. That's essentially what, what he's saying. Without an oral tradition, some of the Torah's laws would be incomprehensible. Okay, I'm being sarcastic here, but like we read that, I was like, well, we say they're hard maybe to understand, but we, we don't throw it out, we don't add to it, we don't follow traditions of man, we, we would stick to God's word and do our best to figure that out. And this, he references the Shema, which is the Deuteronomy verse, chapter 6. And the Shema's first paragraph, the Bible instructs, and these words which I command you this day shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So we read that, we understand. Our heart is where it's at. We desire to follow the Lord so much so that we want to teach it, we want to share it, we want to be witnesses, etc., right? Isn't that how we interpret it? Um, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. Now he says, bind them for a sign upon your hand, quote, the last verse instructs, bind what? The Torah doesn't say. And they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. What frontlets? The Hebrew word for frontlets, todafot, is used three times in the Torah, always in this context, and is obscure, as obscure as is the English. Only in the oral law do we learn that what a Jewish male should bind on his hand and between his eyes are phylacteries. So they, 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 so they, they, they designed these phylacteries. That's what the oral law said you should do. So again, they're, they're like missing the point. They're going to these uh, interpretations of it that are more important than the actual word itself. Any questions? I think it represents the way they were thinking and what Jesus is trying to correct here. Yeah, the question is, is this what a, the Jewish people are taught during the bar mitzvah? I don't know exactly, but it is along these lines where they, they are taught from the um, Talmud. That, that's, that's, I guess, all I can say. A lot of these things are written in the Talmud. I think the Jewish people, the um, Orthodox Jewish people still go by it.
and they still reference it, and that is what they're following is the traditions in the Torah. And that's how they interpret the Old Testament. The, the, the Bible isn't the Old Testament. Let's put it this way. The Talmud has as much uh, authority, or even more, than the actual words, which is a mistake, right? There's some Christian, Catholics, it's the same thing. The Catholics have their traditions that they follow that are really more important than the Bible. And so I see them sort of as parallel um, thinking. If we were to put a contemporary, something we'd understand, I think, as a Catholic church would follow traditions of men more than they follow the teachings in the Bible. Very good, I and mean, that that was going to be one of the my main application points at the end. But let's just let's just insert it now. Seriously, so exactly, even as believers now, to use the language here, are there traditions of men that we Christians elevate? Let's think: Are there any right now that in our church that we think are it's really important? If you don't do this, basically, you're not a Christian. But it's really nowhere in the Bible. Any of them to just jump to your mind that we might be tempted to follow? Roy, you're first. You brought it up. you got to come up with an example. <laughs> I, mean, I, I grew up in a, in a very conservative, legalistic house and, and teachings, and, and music was a big thing. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, you couldn't have a beat on the second and fourth. Uh, you know, you couldn't have an emphasis on second and fourth beat and, yeah. and things along those lines. Right. Music. Even in churches, sometimes you have um, <laughs> preference issues versus... Uh, doctrinal issues. So music is a biggie. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that won't go to a church if the music isn't quite right. If it's not classical music or if it's not, you know, if there's drums involved and they won't go there. So, yeah, what else? I think we have good practices that we need to be careful to not elevate to legal practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not, we can't legalize that. Right. Um, it, it's, it doesn't mean it's an all Christian if you right. um, make up and yeah. participate in So we might impose on ourselves some uh, schedule or rule that we hold to to uh, help us determine if we're holy that for that day or ho- holy enough Christian, and that wouldn't be in the Bible. Or impose it on someone else, right? The key would be, where is your heart? Is your heart right? And that's what the Lord always drives us to examine, is examine our heart. But it's a good practice. But it's a good practice. So, boy, you guys are just... So, the, another question is... Go ahead, Ashley. This might step on... I don't know if this... Is, but, like, homeschooling and things like that. Homeschooling, yes. Focus on how 
out of school, what's the best way, or even holidays sometimes, I think, become very contentious. How do you celebrate? Do you celebrate? Yep. There's a couple holidays I was going to bring up. I mean, one contemporary, driving through Woodstock, to me, is just like, ugh, right now. I mean, the the, uh, Halloween thing is, that's not a church tradition, obviously, but um, that's a tradition that uh, isn't good. What about another tradition? What about Christmas, actually? That's a a mind twister, a little bit. I think if you do the history, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to get way off on a rabbit trail. But yeah, Christmas is one to really think about because uh, so much of the imagery we have, you know, the Christmas tree and, of course, Santa Claus and uh, other Rudolph and all that stuff. But Christmas, I guess what I would say is sometimes I get a little nervous with Christians who really think this is like the holy of holy days. And, And if you look at the history of actual December 25th, I think you could make a good argument. It's not really so much based in Jesus' birth as it is other things. To me, the bigger holiday would be Easter, but I don't want to get too far off on that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is not all traditions are bad. And so does that to say we have a Christmas tree, we have a great time at Christmas, and it's a holiday, and we have people over, and we have eggnog and all this stuff, but it doesn't make it the same as Scripture, obviously. So not all traditions are bad. And in fact, Jesus instructs us in this text what is the mark of a bad tradition. And we'll jump to it. Verse 8 of Mark 7. As long as we don't neglect the commandment of God, we're okay. Because here's his final criticism. It says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. So these people put their traditions above above God's commands. And that's what is wrong. So as long as our traditions don't violate that principle, I think we can call them safe ground. Okay, so, but, but back, I think we made that point. Any other thoughts on that? Um, the, the particular tradition of the dietary regulations was obviously a sensitive issue. We know, not just here, but there's other texts in the New Testament that tell us this was a really sensitive and embedded issue in the Jewish mind. So, anybody know where they are? First Corinthians is one. Romans? 14. Romans 14. Oh, First Corinthians 14. What's First Corinthians 14? Food sacrifice to idols. Yeah, thank you. Right. Which one? I'm not exactly sure in First Corinthians where it is. I shouldn't open it up like that when I don't know the exact answers. But yeah, I know it's in First Corinthians. Those aren't the exact verses that I had. While you're looking, let me, just, let me just point out a few that are really obvious. One is in Acts chapter 10 with Peter, his vision at Joppa, remember? When he's up praying and he has his vision, and well, let's just flip there real quick. And it, and it just shows the point that uh, this was so embedded, it was important for, Pe- for God to give Peter this vision, and he's going to use it to explain that the gospel is open to everybody, the Gentiles, impress on him that particular point. Even though this is after Pentecost, he continually needed to be prodded and told that. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Well, I won't read the whole thing, but basically it's chapters, or verses 1 through 19, where he's in, there's a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, the centurion. He's a devout man, 
verse 2, who feared God with all his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. The ninth hour of the day he saw in a vision an angel of God who would come in and said to him, Cornelius. And then he says, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa. Send for a man named Simon, who's Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Then the angel leaves him, and they go to Peter, who's in Joppa, and he's getting hungry, verse 10, and he's desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground, and in it were all kinds of animals and crawling creatures and birds, And a voice says in verse 13, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And then verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So this idea is still in his mind. There's an imperative. to He can't eat food that's unholy or unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. Okay, three times means it's important, right? He's trying to impress on him. Immediately, the object was taken up. Peter was perplexed. Um, and, and the point of this is that later, God tells him, you know, all food is okay to eat. The ceremonial cleansing and all this thing that you think is, it's okay. It's not an issue. Romans chapter 14. I'll just read a couple verses here. Uh, verse 19 I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything unclean, to him it is unclean. So he's getting to the heart issue. Paul, in 14 of Romans, is talking about the Christian's liberty to do certain things. All right? We have liberty to do certain things. If we think something's unclean, then it's unclean. Verse 20, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So one reason to abide that would be to not cause your brother to stumble. But it's not unclean to eat food. And there's one more verse I can't resist going to because it's so key to this verse here. It's in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul calls down Peter for associating. Sometimes he was putting himself off with the Jews when the Gentiles were near, giving the impression that we're a holy, pious group, and I'm not really associating with you. I want to read those verses for you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Um, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, so interesting. So imagine the Jewish culture all these years with the traditions of the, of the Pharisees. And mealtime was particularly distinct. You had the Jews over here with all their clean food and all their clean washings. They would never associate with the Gentiles. So for us, eating is often a time of socialization, right? And that's sort of where it's going to in the New Testament. But in the time that Jesus is writing this in Mark 7, that was a time where, like no other, where you had separation of the groups. So... You can see in Galatians, when it's written, even Peter was still carrying some of that baggage with him. He, he was separating himself off with the Jews. Um, okay, in verse 12, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So he's scared of the Jews. 
The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So it can spread. We, we can follow people's example. He was a leader. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's saying, you were living with the Gentiles. You were doing fine. Now, by separating yourself and giving this impression that they're more holy, you can't do that. It's not right. So it was a good rebuke by Paul for Peter, to Peter. Okay, so... The point being, this was obviously a very deeply embedded in their culture. And it took a while for the new church to figure it out. Okay, let's move to verse 5 of Mark. Any questions about that? Disagreements? Mark 7, verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? At least they're admitting it's a tradition of the elders. But eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, this is Jesus' response, he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. Now, it's sarcastic here. When he uses the word rightly, another translation for it might be beautifully or excellently. Like, beautifully do you do this. He's saying, in a beautiful way, you did Isaiah prophecy. Rightly, beautifully, correctly, fine did Isaiah prophecy about you hypocrites, as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. This is Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So, pretty clear, Jesus just goes to their prophets and said, you know what he was talking about back then? This is perfect to describe you guys. You're teaching your precepts and not God's word. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So he quotes uh, Isaiah the prophet, and then in chapter, or verse 10, he quotes the law. So he's going to quote the prophet and the law. Prophet Isaiah and then the law from Moses. Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Korban, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, and you do many things such as that. So, what's going on here? Do you understand what Korban was? It says right here it was given to God. So the way it was used back then was in their traditions. They had a way to commit something to God. And they would just sort of magically say, Korban, like that. they say, it's Korban. Like if they had land or a, a you know, plot of land or some money or something that was, that was in their savings account, they'd say, nope, that's Korban. That's committed to God. That's a gift to God. It's not to be touched. It's not to be used by anybody else. That's reserved for God, Okay. And, of course, they misused it. The way they misused it was they knew they had parents that were getting old that would need help financially or otherwise, or they maybe need to bring them into their land and help support them. I said, well, that's Corban, sorry. I can't help you, Mom and Dad. That's Corban. That's God. I'm holy. I wish I could help you, but I can't. I made an oath. That's, That's the way 
this was used. And if you read the Talmud, it describes that exact fact. And apparently, in the Talmud, all these 6,000 pages, they have, it's like legal briefings. They'll have situations that come, and they'll describe what happened, and they'll describe how the rabbis decided to fix it based on their interpretation of the law. There are apparently particular scenes like this where the person said, well, it was Korban, but I actually still want to use that. So they could say Korban again and temporarily release it for a while, or they could give their land to somebody else for a while. There's all kinds of ways around the Korban, but, but the point is they were abusing it. And not only were they abusing their own tradition, but Jesus says they're violating the whole point of this commandment, honoring your father and mother. He speaks evil of his father and mother is to be put to death. So Jesus is telling them, you are to honor them. You're to love your parents. It doesn't just mean you say nice things. It means you honor them, you take care of them. And so another example where they were taking their tradition, saying Korban, let them wiggle out of their obligation to honor their parents. And he said, that's, that's violating my law. You're, you're not understanding God's law, and you're putting your traditions and your desires ahead of it. Okay, any questions on that? I kind of want to... Um, there's a few more things, but I don't think we'll have time to get to it. So... Um, Maybe another application question for you. We already discussed, are all traditions wrong? No, they're not. If they undermine God's word, they're wrong. If they supersede it, they're wrong. Jesus instructs them, do not invalidate the word of God. How do Christians do this today beyond um, some, of these, some of these holidays and stuff? How do we Christians invalidate the word of God? And it, I'm trying to get us to go personal into our own particular Sin. How, how do we invalidate God's word? We're studying this book in our small group. Is Mike here? No. The uh, Respectable Sins. And that's sort of where I'm going with this. So Christians can invalidate God's word on a daily basis. How do we do it? Fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things through prayer and supplication. So if we're beset with fear and anxiety hard to say it, but you're invalidating God's word because he says don't do that. So we should be challenged constantly to go back to his word. What else are common ways that Christians invalidate his word? Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good one. Right, so we will couch gossip in some sort of holy code words, right? Let's pray for this person, and you just use it as an opportunity to gossip. Yes, very good. What else? Hmm? Not only pray, but this is how to pray. Yeah, right. Wrong motives. Right, wrong motives. Anything? Discontentment. Yep. Discontentment, sort of a form of envy, right? Are you discontent that God didn't give you a big enough house or enough money or something, but maybe you envy someone else and what they have, and we'll actually, he addresses those later on. Yes? Yeah. It says, like, set your mind on things above, not things on earth. So that is a command of God, set your mind on certain things and to guard it, and we don't do it. We'll let it wander off onto all kinds of other things, right? I've got one in particular I was waiting for you guys to say, but 
let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I mean, I'm challenged by that constantly because unwholesome word, it's not just cuss words, right? When we got that, we understand that we shouldn't curse. But there's other unwholesome speech that we can participate in all day, making fun of people or, um, anyway, gossip and just loose talk. Hmm? Complaining. Complaining about things, right. So there's all kinds of unwholesome talk. Yes, like who? Yes. All right. I know I've mentioned this before, but I was in a church once when, when the holy president was in power, we prayed for him. And then when the unholy president came in power, all the prayer for the president stopped. So, yeah, the point is uh, we, we've got, people are in charge, are rulers of nations. God sovereignly is ultimately over anyway, and we're to pray for people that have authority over us. And as hard as it is because we don't like them, we're to do it. Right. And not talk maliciously about the president. I do anyway, this is, this is an area probably real sensitive to many people, me included. Irreverent talk about that. So, yeah. Right. Right. It pleases him. And the other thing is pray for your enemies. So you can think of enemies that we have. Who's your real, who are some real enemies in your life? Whether it's the, um, you know, right close to you where you live or in the geopolitical arena, do you pray for your enemies? That's another way we invalidate God's word by not praying for enemies. So. Yes, right. So we're saved by Christ, not by the works of the law, right? And two of the trap Christians can get into is have that I'm saved, and it's almost like it's a license to just go ahead and live loosely and just say, yeah, you know, and not guard our hearts and not guard our mouths or our routines or our quiet. I mean, we, we will have an excuse to not live a holy life because, well, we're, we're in, we're saved. Very good. Well, I think we'll end there, and we'll just pick up next week. I didn't get as far as we want, but actually this is a natural break, verse 13 of Mark chapter 7. We'll pick up on verse 14 next week and finish out the chapter.